Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. XP podcast with your host Steve Fielder and me Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast, and today your host, Chris Powell, me, and uh, Steve Fielder is on the other end of this line, and we have got a very special guest today with uh, Mr. Gary Robertson from Menard, Texas. You might more than likely recognize that name. He's uh, the producer of Carnivore TV and one of the owners of, or you the sole owner of Burnham Brothers, Gary. I guess I'm the sole owner. No one else wants it, so I'm it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Gary, it's an honor to have you on the show. Uh, I know you've been a houndsman for several years, and uh, uh, just kind of want to start out with talking a little bit about Carnivore TV, because I found that on the uh, Pursuit Up channel. I was actually watching it before you moved it over to that app, and... uh, so how many seasons have you had had uh, Carnivore TV on now? Uh, we're shooting our ninth season, so we've, we've aired eight, and uh, we're in the process of shooting number nine right now. And, of course, we air on the Pursuit Channel in the third and fourth quarters, so July through the end of December. Uh, so... Like I say, we're right now, we're, we're shooting uh, season number nine and uh, having a little trouble this year battling the weather. It's uh, It's been a little wetter down here in Texas than what we're used to. And I don't like to be, you know, it's not good for the camera. So, you know, when it rains, we've, we've got to be indoors. Yeah. Yeah. So what part of Texas are you are you uh, from there, Gary? I know you're from one part of Texas and you live in a, another part of Texas now. So so where are we talking to you from today? Well, I was raised in South Texas, about 50 miles southwest of San Antonio. Uh, but I live in the hill country and have since 1985. Uh, most people, you know, they say, oh, you're from Lord. that's that's West Texas. But uh, actually, uh, I'm within 20 miles of the geodetic center of the state. Uh, so if you put your finger right where you think the center of Texas might be, chances are I would be under it. Yeah, yeah. I did a little bit of research on uh, Menard, Texas. It's the uh, home of the Jim Bowie Trail Ride. I found that out. What is that? Uh, Jim Bowie, who was, of course, you know, what 
somewhat of a Texas legend uh, and died at the Alamo, made several trips up into Menard, Menard County uh, back, you know, in the 1800s. Uh, he was convinced that there was silver here and uh, I, I don't think he was, it was ever mined here, but I think perhaps silver had been, you know, moved here or stored here, maybe perhaps by the Spaniards, uh, moving it out of, you know, out of New Mexico or further west mm -hmm. in an attempt to, you know, put it on ships headed, headed back to Spain. But anyway, uh, whether it was Indians or Spaniards or whoever that, uh, someone came and supposedly convinced him that there was silver here. So he, he, he made several trips up into this country. Yeah. So well, Gary, uh, go ahead, Steve, you've got something you need to throw in there on that. <laughs> yeah. I apologize for interrupting there. I think, uh, Chris and I've been working on a system to prevent that from happening, but I guess, uh, words are traveling slow today, but at any rate, uh, Gary, I was privileged to, uh, as we had discussed earlier, <laughs> Uh, to spend a year of my life out there in West Texas and, and really enjoyed that part of the world. And you have a unique place. Uh, of course, many of our listeners are hounds people, and you have a unique place to coon hunt out there for sure. Uh, I think most of the coons that we chased ended up in a mesquite tree or in a badger hole. <laughs> so, uh, yes, sir. But, uh, yeah, that's a that's a beautiful part of the country. It's rugged, almost semi-desert country, isn't it? Yes, sir, it is. Uh, like I say, until this year, and then it seems to have changed. But uh, this this country typically, you know, your your average rainfall here in Menard County would be about twenty-one to twenty-two inches. Uh, and it, what we do here I, is, of course, we hunt coon because that's what we have. Uh, my love is hunting lion and uh, mountain lion, and of course we ha there's a few here, rarely you know rarely one seen here or killed here. But as we go west, the populations increase, and uh, that's what I like to do is, is chase those lions. So what what I do in this country is is train my dogs on coon and keep them in shape, uh, and I hunt daylight only. And the reason that I hunt daylight is is pretty simple. You know, you go out in the morning about daybreak, and most of the tracks that you hit are were made that night. So that dog has to learn to learn patience, uh, slow them down a little bit, and be able to. You'll find out what kind of nose they have when it hasn't rained here in three months, <laughs> and you kick them out and, and expect them to trail a, a, a coon across dirt. Uh, but that's. But that's the way we evaluate these dogs because when you carry them out west, conditions are generally worse uh, unless we get up in the mountains. And then, of course, you know, the mountains can, you know, the scent seems to hold better there. But if you go into West Texas, goodness gracious, I think that's the toughest place I've ever tried to trail anything. And, of course, you're, you're trailing across a lot of rock. Uh, and, and rock, as you know, is, does an old scent very well. But that's what we do with these dogs. We we train them on coon and then uh, uh, find out what kind of nose they've got. And, you know, if they, we think they can handle it, then we haul them out west. But 
the cool thing is you go out west to where we have a lot of line and there's no coon. And we've got these dogs broke. So about the only thing they're going to get after, of course, is that lion or a bobcat. They'll run cat too. Well, Gary, I can attest to that because uh, when I was in San Angelo, uh, very much uh, bitten by the coon hunting bug back east, uh, my dad shipped out a plot to me. And uh, he had a lot of trouble uh, cold trailing or trailing at all out there uh, for a while. Um, you know, he would hang in there with the walker dogs that I was hunting with. Uh, and there was a dog named Bugler that belonged to Robert Knox uh, that could put his nose in that old West Texas dirt and smell a track, I think uh, the kind that you're talking about, and drift that track out. And when he got it running, then the little plot dog could get in there. And I used to uh, uh, laugh at the guys because he was real quick on the tree. And, of course, they'd tell me, well, he would have never known that tree was there if these walkers hadn't moved it that far. <laughs> and that's absolutely true. But, yeah, I can definitely identify with what you're talking about. The only cats we got into out there were ringtail cats, which I'd never seen. Uh, do you, you want to talk a little bit about them, or is that uh, too mild? Well, no, I, I grew up, of course, I had one as a pet when I was a youngster. And, uh, you know, they're typical of this country. You don't find those, you know, you'll find them in South Texas and in West Texas and up through this hill country, and that's about it. Uh, they make great pets. They're very clean. They're They're pretty intelligent. Uh, they're much smaller than a coon. They'll weigh up to four pounds, probably three, four pounds. Uh, most of them is tail. They have a long tail that, you know, striped like a coon, but longer. And their body is, you know, lighter tan in color. And they're, they kind of have bug eyes. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and if you get one spooked, you know, they, they don't smell quite as bad as a skunk, but they sure give off an odor and, uh, I sure don't like my dogs to mess with them. <laughs> Occasionally we'll have a young dog that will, but usually it doesn't take me long to convince that dog he doesn't need to be playing with that ringtail. You, you know, Texas. But the dogs is, that we use. Go ahead. Go ahead and finish that, Gary. Uh, oh, I, I was just going to kind of go back to what the, the type of dogs we use. I, I raise blue tick dogs. I, my great-grandfather started the South Texas Wolf Hunters Association, and, of course, they weren't hunting wolves. They were chasing coyotes with running walker dogs, primarily some Julys, uh, back in the 1920s. And it got to be such a big deal that uh, Time and Life magazine would come down and cover that event. Uh, I have a Life magazine from December in 1936, when Time and Life both covered the South Texas Wolf Hunters uh, meet at Catula, Texas. And uh, I would bet that that was probably the last time that Time or Life covered anything to do with hunting. <laughs> no doubt about that. <laughs> no doubt. I used, but, uh, I used to take Life magazine when I was a kid, and I, I really enjoyed the photos and stuff, but I don't ever remember anything to do with hunting or anything like that. That's, that's kind of uh, unique for sure. Very unique, but to show how far my roots go back with hound hunting, uh, that I'm sure, you know, some of my ancestors, ancestors before him were hunters, but 
that's about as far back as I can document it. Uh, my grandfather had a, a running walker dog by the name of Tulsa that was rather famous. He won not only the hunt, I think two different times. He was also the bench show champion. And he had the classic bugle mouth that everybody tried to breed for. In mm-hmm. fact, his boy, his mouth was so famous that Walt Disney came down and recorded that dog <laughs> running a coyote at Catula, Texas. Mm. And that is the soundtrack that they used in the movie Voice of Bugle Ann. Oh, man, man, that's one that uh, I didn't see the movie, but I read the book. Uh, uh, and that was a tremendous story. I'll be finding the movie wow. now. I'm going to look for that on Prime, and and uh, just so I yeah. can hear old Tulsa hitting the hitting the high ball there. I used to uh, have several '78 records uh, that were made of you know recordings of him him running a coyote, and uh, oh, I'm not sure where they disappeared to, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I remember listening to him as a kid, and I don't. Of course, I don't have a '78 record player anymore. So uh, those days may be gone. <laughs> Gary, I have a quick question for you about the lion population out there. And I've heard, and I think in in conversations with our mutual friend uh, Kenneth Hemphill, who I, I've learned from you has has recently passed. Uh, talking about the uh, the uh, encroachment or the uh, migration of the mountain lion into that West Texas area, to my knowledge, in '69 and '70, when I was there, there were no no lions around there. At least, if so, nobody talked about it, or we certainly didn't see any signs of them. Uh, what's what's been going on with that? Well. This was, as you know, this was sheep and goat country. And for 100 years, uh, they did everything they could to remove all the coyotes and all the bobcats, and they sure didn't want lion here. Lion is not a protected species in Texas. It is They are treated just like any other predator. Even uh, in 2000? Even even today, you're saying they're not protected there, Gary? Even, even today. Wow. Uh, there's no season on them. There's no bag limit. But... I'm 66 years old, and there's more lion today in Texas than at any time in my life. And it just goes back to there's less predator control than there used to be because, like I say, less you know less people trying to make a living with livestock. Uh, and especially there's so many – so much of this country has been bought up by absentee landowners. They're interested in hunting, and they're in, interested in recreation – but not so much about controlling the predators. So that that is the reason I you know I think that we see the populations increasing. And let's face it, you know most of the old lion hunters that I knew growing up, they're long gone, and and there's no one stepped up to take their place. There's just not that many guys out chasing them anymore. So well, Gary, uh, when you say absentee landowner. Uh, you're referring to a person that that owns a ranch or property there, and then doesn't live on it or lives out of state. Are you having a lot of out of state people buying buying ranches in Texas, or has that been a, a long time trend down there? That's not 
that's not been a huge problem where I am. Most of these landowners or people that are buying land here are coming from Houston or Dallas. Mm -hmm. And now we're a, a high percentage are coming from Midland, you know, out of the oil field. Uh, because let's face it, those big folks are making a lot of money now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're buying up a lot of this property as, you know, as an old rancher retires or, you know, or he passes and it goes to the next generation. Uh, a lot of those heirs, you know, made a living somewhere else and they're not so much interested in holding on to these, you know, these ranches anymore. So we're, so we're seeing it sell to uh, folks that most of them are Texas folks, but, uh, but they do not live here. Well, Gary, you mentioned these older ranchers. When I was there, uh, I would go up to Robert Lee, Texas and hunt with a gentleman named Ed Bagwell. And maybe you've met Ed or heard about him. I know that he passed away in recent years. Ed would, uh, was a foreman on, I think, 40 sections uh, of land up there on the ranch that he worked by horseback. And, uh, we would go up and find Ed eating his, his supper at about dark, and he would uh, load hounds in that old Ford F-150 with the cattle rack on the back, and we'd go out bouncing through those dry washes around those tanks and and uh, seeing usually more rattlesnake eyes than we did coon eyes. But uh, when you say <laughs> old ranchers, it brings back a lot of memories for me. Yes, sir. I, I knew of Ed, but I never hunted with him. Uh, Robert Lee is about a hundred and uh, a little over a hundred miles north of here. And, you know, I typically hunted a little closer to the house if I was coon hunting. Sure. I never got in competition game uh, to speak of uh, because the dogs that, that work well for, for lion are, you know, these are trailing dogs that they need to be work somewhat as a team. Uh, I don't want them to be so independent that, you know, they won't honor each other because it takes teamwork. A lot of good things have to happen on the ground before we get to worry about that tree. And it seems that a lot of the competition dogs are, you know, they're worried about tree, tree. Well, like I say, there's a whole lot of good things that have to happen on the ground in this country before we can even worry about a tree. So a lot of the qualities that are in the competition dogs, I don't necessarily like to see in my dogs. Uh, I want them to work together and I want them to work that old bad track and uh, be, you know, somewhat independent if they, if they're right and they know it to stick with it. But, if they're not getting anything done and another dog's hitting out ahead of them, they better get there uh, if they want to stay in the race. So uh, that's the type of dogs that I like to that I like to you know work with. Sounds like you would have fit right in with uh, the Lee brothers and Ben Lilly and and Montague Stevens and some of those guys, Gary. <laughs> well, it's a shame I don't live a little further west i've thought about you know if i ever retire slow down <laughs> uh perhaps moving further west where i can get up and just go hunt every day uh and i like to hunt horseback uh if i can but 
you know, I hunt a tremendous amount in the Navajo reservation now. And, and the reason I do is it's so big and uh, you can get a lion permit out there for $250, but there's 17 and a half million acres in that reservation. Unfortunately, there's hundreds of thousands of wild horses and uh, those wild horses don't take well to horses that are brought in. So uh, we generally just go up there and road hunt these dogs, you know, on miles and miles and miles of roads up in those mountains. Now, where is that reservation located, Gary? That, the, the Navajo reservation is just south of the Four Corners. Most of it is in uh, northeast Arizona. Uh, it spills over into northwest New Mexico and then goes on up into Utah in the southeast corner there. Uh, but beautiful country uh, and, and so much of it. Uh, in fact, I, there's a young gentleman that uh, works for me and helps us quite a bit. Uh, by the name of Calvin Redhouse, and Calvin was is a, is a Marine. He did five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I helped get Calvin started in the dog business. And now, now he's outfitting for for lion and bear there in the Navajo, and he's very successful. And he shoots a lot of video for carnivore. Great, great. Well, I was able to hunt the White Mountain Apache in uh, Arizona. Uh, yes, sir. Sir Bear with professional guide out there, Tom David, and Summit Outfitters. I don't know if you've met Tom, but uh, he and I uh, had a mutual uh, love for the plot and uh, made an acquaintance, and I was able to go out there one time and enjoyed that a lot. I have a quick question, and then I'm going to yield to to Chris, uh, you mentioned your blue ticks. Does the name Tom Broom mean anything to you? Yes, sir. I, I, I never, of course, never hunted with Tom. He was from Gorman, Texas, which is a couple of hours kind of northeast of here. Uh, and, but I knew of some of his dogs. And back in the early 60s, I had some dogs that went back to Tom's dogs. I see. Uh, I figured you would not recognize that name because I heard it a lot when I was in Texas. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Like I said, I just, I never, you know, he was a little, I won't say he was before my time, but I grew up hunting in South Texas. I, I guess I started, I had my first dogs when I was 10 and just coon hunted and then uh, kind of morphed from coon hunting into uh, a little more of the running dogs and I was crossing them with blue dogs and, and trying to run cat a little bit more and it, it did that for a number of years and then uh, Buddy had some trend walker dogs and he tried to convince me that was what we <laughs> needed and, yeah. and I had trend walker dog I raised them for a, while, a few mm -hmm. years but uh, they were more pure coon dogs I thought uh, they didn't work as well for what I was trying to do and that was chase cat at that time and and nowadays i i really uh kind of about 25 years ago started hunting these blue dogs because they seem to fit this arid country a little better and then when i started trying to chase line well they sure seem to fit that bill a little better than than some of the other hotter nosed dogs well gary you've uh you've had quite a successful 
career in the outdoors and being a houndsman. Um, and I know you've also done some some episodes for Carnivore TV about breeding. And how many how many generations of hounds are you hunting, or or do you consider yourself a breeder? You know, just kind of lay that out for us a little bit. Well, I don't I don't know that I ever considered myself a breeder. I do study genetics, and I don't like you know if you have a really good dog, especially a female. Uh, I hate to take her out of the, out of the pack, so I'll breed a female maybe once a year, and uh, I've been breeding these dogs. Well, it's like I say, since uh, about 1990, and uh, so I've got several generations that are bred similarly, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I line breed the dogs and. I think we did an episode, I think a year or two ago, where I did take a female and had her surgically inseminated. Right. Uh, you got one a, male dog that had been. I got one male pup. And <laughs> I let a buddy hunt him, and I didn't. I didn't like the way he turned out, confirmation wise, and uh, and he was a little hard headed, so I did not keep him. Uh, you know, that's one thing. You know, a lot of people I've heard say, well. They never worry about a dog's confirmation if he hunts the way you want. But I feel, I have found out that if you hunt these dogs like we do and ask them to go 30 to 50 miles in a day, these dogs have to be put together right. Mm-hmm. And uh, If not, they cripple up and they won't make it. They'll make it maybe a day or two. But I loaned a dog to a buddy of mine up in New Mexico to lion hunt. He was trying to get started, and uh, he was a really nice male dog. And, uh, they hunted that dog 21 days straight. Uh, he said, of course, they were hunting well with other dogs, but they, he said that was the only dog that could do it. Yeah. And uh, so these dogs have to have a little, they've got to be put together right, and they've got to have a little leg under them. Well, you're talking about lime breeding, Gary, and, and of course, you've got a, a pretty um, unique situation out there. The things that you're asking from your hounds compared to what most Eastern houndsmen have. So line breeding is a term that gets thrown around a lot and probably misunderstood. But just can you talk a little bit about the kind of traits that you're looking for uh, to include in a breeding program and, and then what, how, you're, how you're using those traits? I know that some of your – I don't know how much. I haven't studied your pedigrees, but I, I, when I think of Gary Robertson, I think of Clear River Diamond Jim. So – Kind of take us back through that a little bit, and 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 describe what you're looking for, and 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 how you're using those traits, what you're looking for in the traits, and how you're using it to uh, make some of those breeding choices. Well, I have used Clear River Diamond Jim. I bred to him when he was, I think, a four-year-old dog. Uh, you know, in Oklahoma, when Jim Smalling owned him, and uh, I, I took a really a really nice female that. It was heavy, heavy, smoky, smoky river. A little, she had a little vaughn in her, and uh, also quite a bit of uh, Dennis Upson's breeding out of Wisconsin. Uh, Dennis, you know, hunts coon a little, but he's primarily a bear hunter. And I really uh, that Upson breeding that he had, I thought uh, they those dogs had excellent confirmation, and 
so I, again, I, I kind of like those pretty dogs that, that have a, a tremendous amount of drive and desire to go. Uh, but yet they can't be too independent. Like I say, mm-hmm. if you get a, and I've seen some dogs that are independent to a fault, no matter what's going on around them, you know, they won't, you know, they won't quit what they're doing. Uh, but I think first and foremost, you have to have a dog that's intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, no matter above everything else he's got, they need to be smart and, uh, that, and then, uh, uh, as far as the next trait, I guess I would say drive, you know, never, you know, not to quit and right. be ha- almost hard headed to a fault. You know, if they, if they can still smell it to be, to stick in there and work and work and, and try to work that track out. Uh, you know, I've, I've hunted with a lot of bobcat hunters in South Texas and they use primary running dogs and, you know, they, they kind of laugh at some of my blue dogs. Uh, that's okay. You know, because they everybody, like. everybody laughs at blue everybody dogs does. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a blue dog and I'm a anyway. blue tick man. So I can say that. But, uh, you know, they don't really want their dogs to trail. There's so many bobcat down there in that country, and I hunt down there quite a bit, that we'll go down the road and we'll strike the bobcat track, and they'll let their dogs mess with it at maybe five or ten minutes. And if they don't get it jumped and running, they're honking them back to the road, and we're going to road them down the road because they know we'll, you know, we're going to strike another one, you know, probably 400, maybe half a mile down the you know yards or to half a mile down the road so it's no big deal uh they just they want to hear a, a jump race and, and that's fine i like to hear one too mm-hmm. but uh that you know they're also going to have 20 dogs on the ground yeah. and uh i hunt in, i hunt four to six uh when i'm line hunting uh right now i'm hunting eight around here because i've got a couple of young dogs that i'm bringing up in fact uh from that from that litter that we did, uh, that insemination and, uh, uh, we'll see how they turn out. Uh, but, but drive intelligence and drive. And then third, they've got to have a nose and, and of course they've got to know how to use it. But I think that goes back to intelligence. Well, there's you know, no sense dogs, in, let's face it. Go ahead. Uh, some dogs may be able to smell, but they don't really want to cold trail. You know, you've got to have a dog that's willing to, to make that extra effort to trail. Cause you know, we can hit a coon track and, uh, you know, if, especially if we hunt after dark, we're going to, there's plenty of coon in this country. We can hit them and, and, uh, they can, they can run a hot track. Uh, but you don't hit many line tracks hot. Uh, you get real lucky to do that. Most of the time, it's you know that track's going to be made during the night, and you're in there the next morning, or it may be the day before. And uh, you know that old line can make a lot of tracks in a day. So uh, he, that old dog's got to be willing to work from behind, and and you'll find out a lot about not only your dogs but what you know conditions do. Uh, you know, the barometric pressure, how it affects you. And of course, wind is always a problem out here, but, uh, that, that's all interesting. And, and, you know, and just part of the game that a lot of guys, if they're, 
if they're coon hunting back east where you've got a you know big coon population and there's there's always moisture you don't ever have to deal with that well you know gary you bring up a lot of uh questions not questions but uh, i have a lot of the same feelings that you have having grown up hunting bear in the eastern mountains and even though yes they're generally is more moisture out there than what you have in west texas we would also encounter dry conditions where the leaves were constantly churning uh, uh, no rain for several days the dogs would strike a track along a creek and would seemingly be able to take it once they got up on the hillside the track would break down uh when we would begin our training season in August and all the greenery that we have to deal with out east um, presents its own trailing problems because when the frost would hit and the, the, and the leaves were down and the weeds were killed out, it seems like the dogs could just grab another gear as far as being able to cold trail. But I will have to concede to you that the conditions that that I saw out there in West Texas were probably the most severe that that I've seen. And I've hunted uh, actually in in eastern Arizona. I hunted uh, in the Lincoln Forest in in southern New Mexico uh, under pretty dry conditions as well. But uh, you mentioned something earlier that I would like to revisit with you just for a second uh, about confirmation. You know, in my work with the registries all those years, I was also uh, uh, commissioned, so to speak, to develop bench shows and and train judges. And when I went to the AKC, I had to provide the education for these show judges that had never seen a coonhound other than a black and tan. And I tried to stress the importance of confirmation. It's good to hear for me to hear you talk about it as being an important trait because certainly if that dog uh, is not uh, is does not have uh, the proper confirmation, he's not going to be able to work in the way that he was bred to do. So just glad that you brought that up and a lion hunter in West Texas uh, uh, seeing the same uh, idea about that that I do. That's refreshing to me, buddy. There's no sense in hunting an ugly one, I can tell you that. Well, if you have your choice, there's not. That's right. Well, you know, Gary, guys will say that all day. You know, I don't care about looks, but when they cut, walk up to a pen full of pups, they'll pick the per- prettiest one out of the litter every time. I've never seen anybody pick the ugliest one. Of That's you. right. No. <laughs> You were visited some of about carnivore, and yes, we we try to do uh, about four episodes a year on using dogs, and of course, we've typically done one every year at least uh, on uh, with hog hunting. That's gotten huge in this part mm-hmm. of the world. I just watched it's an episode simply, last night about big. hogs. It uh, it's gotten so big because. You know, there, when I moved here in 1985, there wasn't a wild hog in this county. Now we can go out in the morning and we might catch 15 hogs with dogs. And uh, it takes, you know, it, it, these most of them are cur dogs. We're not using many hounds. We're using a few plots. Uh, they need to be grittier kind of dogs. They don't need to have great nose, uh, noses on them because the hog stinks pretty good, as you know. 
but I think the reason for the growth in in in, uh, in the hog hunters is simply because all of these landowners have them and no one wants them. So if you've got dogs, you know, people come to you and they'll ask you to come hunt on their place. You know, so it's easy to gain access to these ranches, uh, you know, if you're hunting. But it's it's crazy. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna we're you know we love dogs, and so we're gonna continue to to do three to four episodes. We might even do five in a year if we come across good stories. This what we try to do on carnivore is yes, we're gonna be hunting, but if you watch carnivore, most episodes we're telling a story. We right. try to be cinematic. We you know we'll build the story around where we're hunting or who we're hunting with. Or we even did a story built it around a dog one time. Uh, so uh, that's what we, you know, we have found works well for us. And our, you know, uh, we have a, a lot of viewers. Uh, we air on the Pursuit Channel in 34 quarters. Then we take those same, same episodes and run them on Hunt TV or the Hunt Channel. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, nowadays, if you want to watch Carnivore, you can go to, you can download a free app. It's called Pursuit Up, and you can watch Carnivore whenever you want. Just go to Pursuit Up, click on the on hunting, and then scroll down to Carnivore. Click on that, and then you pick which episode you want to watch. and And uh, I think we probably have more viewers on Pursuit Up than anywhere else in, in this day and time. Well, I downloaded. And would have thought it. Yeah, I downloaded that app, Gary, onto uh, my smart TV. So now I just sit in the easy chair and and like i said last night i watched uh an episode on hog honey and that was real interesting but you mentioned calvin redhouse he's going to be on the show in a and here coming up shortly um i'm working out some details with him right now but you know one of the things i wanted to to talk talk about gary is for anybody that that doesn't know you, and I've just met you, met you at the NRA show, talked to you a few a few times on uh, on the UKC forum. But the unique thing that I found about you is, I felt like I, I was talking to somebody that I'd known my whole life, and that speaks to your character. But tell me about mentoring houndsmen, Western houndsmen. Uh, I'm not asking you to brag or toot your own horn, but how important is that to you to mentor houndsmen? You mentioned, you know, giving a dog to a guy in New Mexico that was trying to get started. So um, I think that's that's worthy of a few minutes of our time here to talk about that and how important that is. Well, I've been blessed to, you know, have been raised on a ranch and and grew up hunting, and then of course we we live in a in a rural area here, Menard County. The t- population of this county is 2,200 people, uh, and and my wife uh, Deb and I have been married for 43 years, and we raised three sons, and of course all of them are hunters, and of course I kept them in the woods, and then of course all of their buddies that wanted to go, we kept <laughs> them in the woods, and. Uh, so I can't tell you the number of, you know, young people I've drugged the woods. I know we, there's a Boy Scout camp just west of here at Fort McCavitt, uh, which is in the county. And uh, for years, they had a summer program with uh, kids that were 
um, high school age, and uh, I would take a couple of nights a week. I would go out there, and we took all of those kids that were in that program, uh, which was usually about 60 every summer. And we we took them coon hunting. Uh, uh, we felt that that was part of uh, hunting with dogs. It's been done for thousands of years, and that's you know you, all of this country was hunted with dogs. Right. That's how they control the predator population. We wanted to show them that part of that. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, someone uh, you know complained about it uh, as. You know, there's been a lot of changes in the Boy Scouts, and, mm-hmm. and they didn't suddenly didn't want to, us to take those kids hunting, which I uh, I didn't agree with, but uh, I wasn't the one making the decision. So I've worked with uh, a lot of the, like I say, I've, I've kind of fallen in love with the Navajo Nation, and mm-hmm. and I've for surely, like I say, Calvin, I consider him one of my sons. In fact, he calls me dad. And, and uh, anything that I can do to help him, I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a, a brother-in-law that's a, a game warden there in the reservation, and, and I uh, consider him part of the family. We, uh, there's also another game warden there that that I've given a hound or two uh, to him to kind of get him started. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's a shame my wife kind of scratches her head that uh, you know when we do raise litter of pups I end up giving most of them <laughs> away to the people that are hunters uh, rather than uh, selling them and apply money to that dog food bill. But right. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm more interested in seeing hunting and especially hunting with dogs survive. And if I can just you know have a small uh, input in that, then that's what I'm going to do. Well, I think one of the things that uh, is overlooked a lot of times, or maybe the hidden agenda, not really an agenda, but the the underlying message there. You know, you talk about all the kids that you take hunting. We used to uh, have groups that would come out to our place, and all these kids are from the suburbs of Indianapolis, and they'd never had any experience hunting. Most of them had never had any experience in the woods. And I remember several nights where we would take those young kids and these dads, there was a dad's camp, um, and we would take them out and I would look behind me and there would be the, a trail of all these little headlights coming up behind me, you know, maybe 20 or 30 headlights following me. But the, the message is every one of those, that there may not be a kid in that bunch that is ever a serious houndsman or even a serious hunter, but when he, when he gets older then he is going to remember the guy that took him. He's going to put a face to that. And when that is a ballot issue or or a, an issue about hunting, he is not going to – he's going to have more information about what it really is and what it's really about because that's where our battle is, is, is with these non-hunting, non-hunting groups, the people that don't hunt. And, and I separate that between yes. anti-hunting and non-hunters. Anti-hunters are, hunters are the extremists that we're never going to change our mind. But those non-hunters is where we need to focus on. And, and that's where the real value is of, of grabbing these young, young kids and, and getting them out there and exposing them to hunting. Yes, sir. You're right. Um, and 
and I think that's what we do somewhat. You met me at the NRA uh, convention last week, and uh, let's face it, a lot of those people that walk, you know, that walk through that show are non-hunters. Uh, a lot of them are shooters. When I, right. when I came into this business, I bought out Vernon Brothers in 1991, and of course started attending the the Shot Show, the World Hunting Trade Show, and and at that time. 75% of the people that were in attendance were hunters. Now, when I go to the SHOT Show, which was uh, was last January, the last one I attended, I would say that 25 to 30% of the attendees are actually hunters. Mm-hmm. It is We're seeing a shift uh, from hunters to most people being shooters rather than hunters. And uh, I'm not going to say that's a bad thing because most of those people people are are friendly to hunting, but things uh, times are changing. Well, and, that's not uh, necessarily a bad thing, Gary. Uh, when you look at the Pittman Robertson Fund, the the money that's doled out back to the states for uh, fish and wildlife management, that's a tax that's built onto ammunition and firearms. So, so having those shooters in the sport is a good thing and it's it's actually outpacing the dollars that hunters are buying because face it a hunter yes sir a, a hunter i will buy maybe two boxes of ammo for uh sighting in my my deer rifle and then going hunting where a shooter is buying ammo by the cases so those shooters are very important yes. to the survival of hunting and we got it we've got to appeal appeal to them and and keep them involved for sure steve did you have a thought did you have anything well, you need I, to add i was well you you're uh on the right track with this conversation for sure in my years of working with the registries and dealing with legislative issues that face hunters and and so forth and i think the point to be made here is that like gary taking these kids out and you doing as well. I know when my son was in scouts through our church program, I would uh, take the kids out uh, at least one night during the fall uh, that came to the scout meeting and take them out on a coon hunt and and actually harvest the raccoon and showed them how to skin it. We had one little boy lose his dinner uh, <laughs> watching a skin a coon one time and then we'd have to hustle and get back to the church in time for the parents to pick the kids up but all that is so very very important and uh, you know I wore a lot of hats when I was in the registry uh, business and but I never had any work that was more rewarding personally to me than the work I did legislatively on behalf of dogs and dog owners. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's all important if we all do what we can do. And I think that that's the main purpose that Chris and I, uh, agreed upon when we started this, uh, this podcast was to bring hound people together under a common, uh, goal and that's to preserve this sport for future generations. So um, that's that's all I've got on that. But I think both you guys are definitely on track. Well, Gary, um, any anybody that's listening, I mean, you're on here talking about hounds, but you've got a lot of irons in the fire. Uh, 
if you want a job done, find a busy man, I guess, is, is I've heard that from you, Steve. But uh, talk a little bit about being a Ruger ambassador. I mean, you're not just sponsored by Ruger on the show, but, but you're on the a Ruger ambassador. So, so can you talk a little bit about um, what your function is there with Ruger Firearms? And, and one of the things that appealed to me when I met you up there at the show as we talked about this is Ruger is an, is, uh, an American company that still manufactures firearms in the United States. And, and to me, that's important being a Marine myself and a Patriot. So tell us a little bit about the Ruger Ambassador Program and what you're doing there and what Ruger's doing. Well, the way I got involved with, with Ruger is, uh, oh gosh, it, it's a little bit of a long story, but I, I was shooting for Savage and it actually helped develop a, a rifle for them specifically for the pressure hunting game. And, and then I had the opportunity to hunt with Mike Pfeiffer, who was uh, who had just become CEO of Ruger. We were and we were calling coyotes out in New Mexico on a, on a couple of really big ranches that I hunt. And um, Mike and I hit it off. And after the hunt, he 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 called me and asked if I would you know, switch over and work with him at Ruger to, you know, develop a, a predator rifle and, and, uh, and also kind of help promote his products. Mm -hmm. Uh, at that time, I, uh, like I said, I was shooting for Savage and a good friend by the name of Ron Coburn owned the company and Ron and I were very close. And I said, well, I, I don't want to do it, you know, as long as, you know, Ron owns Savage, but if something happens, then I, definitely would would sure like to you know look at making a move so uh ron ended up selling uh ruger to a uh an investment group and savage you mean sa sold, sold savage yes he sold yeah. savage right it wasn't long after that then uh you know then i went back to mike and he invited me and to, to join ruger and uh, of course is our, our title sponsor of carnivore and uh, as, as ambassadors, uh, they, they want us to do some traveling. Uh, we do the work, the NRA convention, uh, we'll be working the Eastern sportsman show this next year. I do the, uh, Texas trophy hunter shows. I, I will be wearing Ruger and of course be there with mm -hmm. the Ruger presence. Uh, they like us. To, we, we're, we're to give them about 20 days a year either promoting at stores or events. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we, when I go to those events, I, I want to visit with everyone and especially the kids. Uh, but I, a lot of people uh, or several people have mentioned that, you know, they like the way that we, we meet the public and, 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 and it's simple. You know, I've, I want to deal with them as the way I would want to be treated. There's no magic here. It's just the golden rule. And if we do that, uh, not only as Ruger ambassadors, but in our daily lives, uh, this world would be a whole lot better place. Well, I stood we back. I stood back and watched you at the Ruger show, and and you're easy to spot. I, what what kind of hat was that you were wearing? Oh gosh, it's a. Uh, it's a little lighter than a silver belly, but that that particular one, I normally wear a resist all, but that one's made by Saratelli Hat Company. Yeah, yeah. And, so you uh, 
You're definitely you the know, sharpest, sharpest dressed guy in the booth. There's no doubt about that. But I watched you, <laughs> I watched you interact with the public the whole time. Uh, I went by the booth a couple times. You were, you were showing people different, different firearms. Uh, you were talking to women and kids. And I mean, it was just, it was, Ruger has a high class booth, by the way, too. I mean, that is very well put together. And, uh, but I watched you interact with the public and, and that's what has drawn me to you, Gary, is, is what you see is what you get. Um, I just can't say enough about that. Has Ruger got anything in the, uh, anything in the, in the hopper that's, that you can share with us or well, any we, big news coming we, out of Ruger? Well, we, we showed, uh, 20 new models there at the NRA convention, different SKUs and, and, uh, you know, I of course I'm I'm a hunter. I'm not so much a shooter, uh, so I, I'm, I like the more tr traditional weapons. Not so much into the AR platforms, but gosh, if a guy wants to use them, that's great. Uh, I like to sh I like to shoot handguns, mm -hmm. and that's what I primarily that's what I carry when I'm coon hunting or, or line hunting for the most part. If we're bear hunting, you know, we might carry I carry the 44 Magnum uh, in that Model 77. And mm -hmm. uh, boy, you talk about handle a bear. When you put that 41, 44 mag in a rifle, it's just a different animal. But uh, <laughs> the, of all the guns that we are just introduced, the one that I feel is going to be by far, in a way, the most popular is the little Wrangler 22 pistol. Uh, it is built similar to the hand, it's about the same size as the old single six. But it has an aluminum frame under it, so that it's was, lighter weight. It was sweet. You took me over there and showed me that one. That was a that felt good in your hand. It's something you can pack. <laughs> it was a really nice pistol. Be you bring back <laughs> Well, yes. Gary, you know my my dad carried a single six for many many years. And uh, when he passed in 2008, I took that old gun. And I probably should have left it just like it was, but I had it re-blued in the, in the, uh, the grips refinished and, and, and put it away. And, and I take it out every once in a while and handle it and remember all the hunts that I took with my dad in that old single six. It's, a, it's quite a piece. And I think that's what we do. Uh, those of us who enjoy and appreciate firearms, uh, the the anti-gun lobby will never understand the affinity we can have for something like that. That's just cold steel and wood or 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 composite. But the it's the stories that go along with those uh, those pieces. And uh, uh, so when you mentioned the single six, that just brought back a flood of memories for me and uh, well, what a great, great uh, firearm that was. And our coon hunters across the country really have, have uh, loved and used the Ruger 1022. You know, that's been a, oh, yes. a, a go-to piece for coon hunters all over the country. I've got one of those myself. I've got yeah. I've don't got we all? Of those and, <laughs> and I'm going to have one of those Wranglers. And the neat thing about that Wrangler is the price point. As we as we discussed, Chris, mm -hmm. you're probably going to be able to buy that 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 pistol for less than two hundred dollars. Yeah. Wow! And yeah. that's 
pretty amazing. It is really that is. Grooved, is that tapped or grooved for a scope? I mean, or is it? it uh, it's not. It has, okay. you know, it's it's big sides like those, most of the old single six were in the Vaquero. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, most of those, I don't know, I guess they're machine so that they generally shoot the sites generally don't need much adjustment you yeah. might have to adjust right. your elevation somewhat but yeah uh windage is generally pretty close right. looks like i'm going to have to spend 200 bucks i'm de- i'm going to because i'm <laughs> talk about a little piece that and you the, can carry for you know just just to have on you and and uh take on the trap line or take taking the into a coon tree that's that's the one that's it and yep. you know it's you know that's the neat thing a lot of, about a lot of the guns that I carry now. I shoot the Americans so much, and of course, the abuse that I give a gun is going to be different than a lot of guys because of where we go and the can. You know, of course, number one, we hunt a lot, but I don't want to carry one with a beautiful stock under it anymore <laughs> uh, because I'm crawling, uh, you know, through yeah. fences and going through brush, and I'm I'm a little bit hard on equipment. I try to keep them clean, but I'm a little tough on equipment. Yeah. Well, Gary, we're uh, we're closing in on an hour here. Uh, I just want to uh, thank you again for being on. But before we go, I want to talk about um, I want to talk about Burnham Brothers Game Calls, where we can find you uh, on the and and Steve, you've got a did you have a say you had a Burnham Brothers? I do. You know, Gary. Gary, back in my days at Coonhound Bloodlines Magazine with the UKC, I used to write product reviews. And uh, I did a a review on coon squallers one time. And at that time, I probably reviewed maybe a dozen different types. You know, there were the old um, Oaks and the Johnny Stewart's and then Timothy Ball came along with the old Weems Predator call made it a coon squalor and all of that. And I picked up a Burnham Brothers call. And I remember in in doing that product review, that, that was my favorite call out of that uh, review. Uh, tell tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, your calls. Well, Burnham Brothers was started by Winston and Murray Burnham. Uh, they were Texas boys uh, from around Marble Falls. They started a company in 1952. And uh, when I grew up, uh, Murray and Winston uh, were kind of my heroes because they traveled the world and and called predators. And I tried to do a little trapping. And, of course, it takes a, you've got to be a pretty good trapper to set a trap well enough that a coyote will stick his foot in it. And uh, in order for me to do that, it took me about an hour to set a trap. I decided (laughs) there had to be a better way. So I got everything I could get my hands on about Burnham Brothers. I read it because I said, calling has got to be easier than this. And it was. Uh, Back in the early 60s when I started calling, I don't, you know, no one was, very few people were calling. And, you know, most of the calling I did is, you know, as a 12-year-old kid was with, a 22 single shot rifle, but it, it would work, you know, because like I say, they never had heard that. Uh, nowadays it seemed like there's a lot more guys doing it, but, uh, so it may be a little tougher, but in the eighties, I started hunting with, uh, Murray Burnham who had purchased, uh, his interest out from Winston and, uh, Murray and I became good friends and 
Then when he sold the company in 1991, I bought it. And uh, up until that time, of course, I was in the banking business and making, you know, started out with the Federal Land Bank, made branch loans across the state. And then I moved to Menard as president of the bank here. And anyway, uh, decided I'd rather chase four-legged coyotes than two-legged ones. Uh, <laughs> one of the real exciting things, <laughs> exciting things we've got coming out now is we're coming out with a new electronic collar where we have something I've been trying to do for about 20 years, but it, I've been working on it for the last three is I have found the ability to record and reproduce ultrasonic sounds, which is going to be the biggest game changer since the 1950s when we first started using recorded animal sounds. There's been no improvement in sound quality until now. And, uh, I've known for years that all these animals could produce ultrasonic sounds and could hear them. Like coyotes hear up to 45,000 hertz. Bobcats can hear up to 64,000. But the calls that are on the market today, the electronic callers are reproducing up to about 15,000 hertz. That's it. So those sounds, the first time you go into a place and use them, they may work. But that's why animals educate so quickly to them. So mm. I've been dabbling with this ultrasonic stuff, and I can tell you, it makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So that will be coming out this summer. Well, it's just one of those deals. What do humans hear at, and not me, because I can't hear anything. We can, we can <laughs> a human hear, you know, a youngster might, you know, 22,000 hertz. Most of us are probably in the 18 to 20 range. Yeah, so so uh, what so, sounds good to our ear, you know, you have a coyote or a bobcat sitting out there thinking, what in the world is that? <laughs> yes, sir, that's exactly right. And uh, so we found that we've got the ability, we've got speakers now that'll go up to about 45,000 hertz. Mm. And uh, my recording equipment will go up to 96,000 hertz. Uh, what was amazing, the first baby cocktail we recorded went over 90,000 hertz. Mm. <laughs> so if you think they were, these yeah. these animals weren't making those sounds, boy, were we wrong. Mm -hmm. I recorded a lip nut myself, lip squeaking, and I went over 50,000 hertz, just a lip squeak. Mm. So most of the sound that we're actually producing, we don't hear. Right. Mm. We've known Fascinating. You know, isn't that crazy? And yeah, of course, it, it we is. know you've heard for years about you know silent dog whistles. Well, all we hear is the air going through the whistle, yet that dog can hear. Mm, I remember, right. I remember, <laughs> it brings back, you remember the, the Andy Griffith episode where where Andy or uh, Barney found blue and kept blowing that dog whistle? <laughs> yes, and I, I watch Andy Griffith blue. every every day. <laughs> Come on, Blue. Even though I've seen him all. <laughs> that was great. Uh, you but speak anyway, of that show. Yeah, I got to throw this in. The other day, I had some drywall done at the house. We had remodeled the kitchen. And I I and I called a guy to come out and look, and I swear to you, the guy when I, he came to the door, he looked like Otis Campbell, just when he, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just about the time he was ready to let himself into the cell. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I, uh, man, it's been great to talk to you, Gary. 
this has been a wonderful experience for me. I've enjoyed it, partner. We're gonna we're gonna have to All have right. you back on for sure, Gary, and and uh, talk some more about those those uh, hounds and and maybe get together for a hunt out in the Navajo Nation. There we go. Like I yeah. say, it's it's easily done. Uh, like I say, anybody can pay, purchase a line permit out there for two hundred and fifty dollars. You know, so that's you know, it's number one you're assured of getting the permit uh then you'll just need to you know negotiate a deal with calvin or someone to take you but that's you know uh that's not an expensive hunt right uh, not by blind hunting standards mm-hmm. and the cool thing is that season opens the first october and goes through the end of june right yeah i was going to go so out this past I winter hunted this year I was going to go out yeah. this past uh, winter and and uh, miss the cutoff date for buying my my lion permit, so didn't get to make that trip. Gary, tell us real quick where we can find you um, on social media and on the internet for Burnham Brothers Game Calls and uh, for Carnivore TV. Let's run through that again real quick. Well, of course, uh, on social media, we I'm old fashioned. Uh, Battle doing any social media, but you can find us on Facebook. It's Carnivore TV, mm-hmm. Vernon Brothers as well. Uh, or you can go to, if you're looking to, you know, to look at the calls of Vernon Brothers, just go to VernonBrothers.com. Uh, and you can find us uh, and welcome anybody to do that. Sure. Uh, we I will say that I really enjoyed the visit and it was kind of like old home week. I don't know you guys very well, but. You know, in talking to you, I can tell you that you're the kind of people we like to run with and be associated with and and uh, look forward to the next visit. Well, that's mutual for me, for sure, Gary. And just one parting shot. you've I've always been a romantic of sorts. And when I think about getting on a horse and, and having a six-gun on my side and following hounds, uh, after a mountain line, I, I'm, I'm, uh, Ben, I uh, will not Ben Lilly. He walked, but, uh, I'm, I'm with the Lee brothers and, uh, I'm in the old West and, and man, it's been a great visit. You bet. Thank well, you so much. You bet, Gary. Thank you. And Steve, we've been working on a, a signature tagline for this show. Yeah. And you remember what you told me you were going to say at the I conclusion of every show. Uh, the words of an old West Virginia bear hunter that I re- uh, admire very much. Chris, you follow your dog and I'll follow mine.